You are listening to Secret Handshake, the podcast covering the movies that help you identify your friends and maybe make a few more along the way. Coming up, Spine number 53, Light Sleeper, and Paul Schrader's Other Lonely Men, featuring taxi drivers, gigolos, drug dealers, escorts, reverends, poker players, and master gardeners, all journaling well into the night. Martin. Yes. I feel my life turning. All it needed was direction. You drift from day to day. Years go by. Then a change comes. I am able to change. Feel this deep down trembling in the earth beneath my feet. Shakes the great foundations I awake from my sleep I trust my life to providence I trust my soul to grace But nothing takes away the pain I can't forget your face Handshake. I'm your host, Jacob Knight, and joining me as always is Martin Carlson. Martin, we're talking about Paul Schrader again. You know, I'm totally okay with that. I mean, we've talked, he probably, out of all the filmmakers, probably comes up the most next to Cronenberg and Man, right? He's the patron saint yeah. of the podcast. I mean, it started the first episode. Yeah. Yeah. Rolling, with Rolling Thunder. I mean, we've brought his writing up so many times. His movies mean so much to us. And honestly, while revisiting the films for this uh, episode, I was trying to figure out why. And I'm going to throw that to you first. I kind of have a theory about it, but I wanted to see what you thought. Why does this guy who writes about these deranged individuals who stay up all night journaling, journaling about their existential thoughts. Why is he our dude? So I have a lot of thoughts about this, but I'm trying to make it clear. So yeah, I was doing the same, watching all the films, taking like notes by each film, but also general notes. And I was, and I'm questioning here. I said, 
am I a Schrader protagonist? And um, a couple months ago, you were trying to set me up on a date, uh, or Carrie was, and said, you said, Carrie, Martin likes his alone time. And I was like, the more I thought about it, I said, I think that he has fucked me up the way that like Disney films fuck girls up for like Prince Charming. This it's romanticized loneliness. And like, I don't think it's like Paul Schrader's fault, but I very much am that type of person. I am neurotic. I, I write, I think a lot. I overthink a lot. I just think he speaks to honestly film guys too. I mean, these people who are just like, on their computer writing and thinking. And while film is communal, it's also a very kind of lonely thing to do and to write about. Um, it's solitary. It's solitary. And um, it, I'll, I'll just share a quick story. When I saw Master Gardener two weeks ago, um, this encapsulates it. I, I walk into the uh, Austin Film Society, bunch of single dudes in the lobby waiting to go in for Master Gardener, opening night, 630 and I'm walking in with this dude, and he goes, oh, man, fuck yeah. I was like, yeah. I go, a lot of single dudes here. He goes, yeah, man, God's lonely man, huh? And then he sits down, and it was just single dudes, and then, like, mansplaining boyfriends and girlfriends who did not want to be there. Like, behind me, this couple, he's like, yeah, it's actually the guy who did Taxi Driver. She's like, yeah, you told me ten times. And I just... I know. I just want I, you to shut the fuck up about pull, it. I'll, I'll watch the movie to shut the fuck up. So... Long-winded answer. I think it just it speaks to me. I feel like I am very similar. Also, like just the way that a lot of his characters have like faces, you know, and have a way of like presenting themselves to the public and like like you know, especially Julian. Like, oh, I'm just an easygoing guy, and like I'm I'm good looking. Underneath, just a complete fucking mess, which I also completely <laughs> empathize with. I think it's also one of those things where like. It's interesting to watch a guy basically write his autobiography, but through these, you said romanticized, and that might be a way, but he's he's almost like channeling himself through all of these different subcultural professions yeah. to where you have a taxi driver in Travis Bickle, you have a prostitute in Richard Gere's Julian, you have... Uh, Willem Dafoe's drug dealer in Light Sleeper, which is the main uh, focus of this episode. Then you have Woody Harrelson's, I don't even know how to describe it, like, escort is the best he way He is an to put actual it. non-sexual escort. Yeah. Like, he is on the arm. He's, he entertains these women. And he, yeah. he takes them to the dinners that basically their, their congressional husbands don't want to attend. Yep. And then you have this later trilogy of movies with uh, First Reformed, Card Counter, and now Master Gardener, which just came out, in that it feels like an older guy reflecting on his life, maybe some of the things that he regrets, and in every case taking on a sort of mentor-mentee relationship with a younger individual. And then also, like expressing the existential fears like all of these movies are incredibly existential like he he in interviews always uh, references uh, Camus and yeah. the stranger and like his biggest influence is obviously 
stretching all the way back to when he wrote film criticism and wrote his book, you know, Transcendental Style is focusing in on like Brisson, Ozu. Uh, but here he's making like these movies about an older guys who have fucked up in their lives and are facing basically apocalypse in one way or another, you know, with first reformed, it's climate change in the card counter. It's like the sins of, you know, torture and like the, the American industrial complex uh, that, you know, is, is touched upon somewhat in taxi driver, but that it always feels like, a foreign concept on the margins that could have possibly contributed to Travis Bickle's like derangement and mental health issues, or he could just be fucked up. What's like from the beginning, you know, and then you have master Gardner, which is about racism and a guy facing like the worst parts or the worst, I guess, ideologies that kind of fester in America. And, considering whether or not those people can change at all. Um, So it's just, it's autobiography through like fiction and you can just see like Travis Bickle is angry young man. American gigolo is professional kind of ingenue. Uh, Light sleeper is a dude like facing a midlife crisis. Uh, The Walker is like this elder statesman, like, realizing he's kind of fading into twilight and then the last you know lonely man trilogy that everybody's talking about now is just an old man reflecting on the past and it's it's kind of amazing because it feels like a complete artistic statement on one guy's own existence and that's the thing that I feel like everybody wants to leave behind in one way or another and that's what we connect to too. Yeah, and I mean, very well put. I think it was also one of the things that I think we both want to speak for that we both love about Schrader, though, is his his use of um, a formula, right? There is a formula to these films in particular. Oh, yeah. Very strict, but... Like Master Gardener borders on parody, well, and, or self-parody, I should say. Absolutely, and on purpose or not, you know, and... Oh, it's I, definitely on I, purpose. Like, he knows what he's fucking doing. Like, he... I, I was listening to a couple interviews. One is the Mark Maron interview that yeah. he did. That's really tremendous. And he's the one thing about Schrader and also speaking as someone who's interviewed him twice too, like he's very self-aware, like he realizes what he's doing and like he's, he's nakedly honest about the fact that like he has his fascinations. He has his like kind of, methodology that he applies to everything that he's made for now, like 50 years. But at the same time, like he's always striving to try and do something different while also retaining that autorist stamp. Yeah. Well, it, yeah, it's, I was thinking um, as I was watching the films, mostly in order um, of just like how some artists, especially like painters would do like a series and it'd be like a very specific, like, subject or style they would repeat it over and over again or um when they're interviewing um oscar isaac guy working on card counter he's like it's like a sonnet you know there's there's rules to a sonnet and but it's what you're done what's done within that that kind of limitation right of like here's the kind of story i'm going to tell um or i think also his his whole calvinist background or like religious background like it's like 
icon painting. Like there's a very specific way you paint an icon. There's still room for creativity. And that's why I like watching his film, especially all together is to see the nuance and see how he takes these in new directions while still not losing that form. Cause you, it's all pickpocket. It's all pickpocket. Oh and, yeah. And country priest. It's Brisson all the way, but the way he's able to, and, and so obviously his films, some are better than others. And while light sleeper is my favorite, I think the end is a little tacked on. I think it's not as earned. Um, he, the kind of like, you have that Brisson ending of, in a lot of these films, of the man is in jail, um, the woman who he loves on the other side of the glass, and they finally connect. Um, he, he finally opens up, or as he wrote about in his book, like he transcends, right? It's this transcendent moment of emotion bursting through for the character and for the film, right? And with Light Sleeper, I always felt like I didn't buy any romance between he and Sarandon earlier. It was all about he and Mary Ann, the uh, Dana Delaney character, and about his grief about that and his past. I didn't quite buy the romance there. So it felt a little bit, okay, oh, we're just going to do this. I don't know how to end this, so here we go. You know? See, I never viewed the relationship between Defoe and Sarandon as romantic. Like, it feels like a guy searching for a new direction in his life. It's it's a midlife crisis movie. Yeah, totally. Like, it's a guy realizing that his job is ending, his whole purpose for essentially being the only thing that he does with his life, which is deal, you know, drugs for this woman, it's coming to a close, and he doesn't have a future. Like, he doesn't know what to do. And he has no skill set outside of what he, you know, is currently engaged in. Like, and in the early 90s with Schrader... That was kind of where his career was at to a certain degree because, like, you know, he famously becomes a hot young screenwriter with the Yakuza and he and his brother brother, Leonard, you know, um, he sells that for a ton of money. He's sought after. He has this legendary script just sitting around Taxi Driver where he basically wrote at his lowest point as a human being. Fever dream. Yeah. He was having fever dreams. He saw, you know, a, a vision of coffins on wheels like driving around the the city and he just he was driving a cab himself he had just gotten divorced from like pauline kale i believe at the time and like were they actually married i don't know if they were married they split that's probably the the more accurate term because she got him into criticism yeah she she started his career she got him into film criticism and because they also talk about you know if you ever listen to like scorsese or de palma or spielberg or any of these guys talk about schrader is that they were all the movie brats, you know, quote unquote. They all had their big personalities. They all kind of had their romantic interests and stuff. And then there was Paul Schrader, (laughs) who was like the ultimate film dork, who was watching nothing but these art movies and talking about Ozu and Brisson and all these Reading philosophy. And was just kind of on the outside and was kind of like an icky dork. The whole way, like, that's also part of, like, what goes into the God's Loneliest Man archetype that he creates for himself is that he realized he was always on the outside. While all of his buddies were out partying and doing whatever and getting into the Hollywood system, he was still up all night writing, up all night reflecting on the world and, like, basically cursed with his lack of, like social skills and personality and, like, he just channels all of that through these characters but then Taxi Driver comes around and was originally, 
you know, supposed to be directed by somebody else who wasn't uh, Scorsese. Uh, it was Jeff Bridges, who was the original Whoa. Travis Bickle. Like Tarantino in, in cinema speculation uh, has a whole chapter devoted to Taxi Driver, and I read it for this episode, and it's quite good. Um, but he goes into it's two chapters actually it's a full one of his full like analysis of the movie itself and then he has a little side chapter afterwards about what if brian de palma directed taxi driver because the story always was i can't remember the director's name who was originally attached to make the movie he was supposed to make the movie they passed Scorsese is kind of, you know, floating around, just made mean streets and everything. And De Palma was actually the one who had the taxi driver script takes that to Scorsese and is like, I considered making this. I don't think it's really for me. You take this. And he goes and makes Carrie instead. So like well, good and good all kind of works <laughs> out, Yeah, but we all win looking back on it. You kind of understand like his connection to these guys because like he's coming on with De Palma at the time right after De Palma is basically becoming like transitioning from being the American Godard, you know, with like greetings and hi mom and and transitioning into being the American Hitchcock with sisters and then Scorsese is going from making his uh little art movies like uh, what what was the original one? Who's that knocking at my door? Yep. And then he makes Mean Streets and Boxcar Bertha too. And, and did he do Alice Doesn't Live Here anymore before he did I Taxi Driver? So. Like right before? Yeah, because yeah. Burston wins the Academy Award for it. And then he's looking for his next project and he gets Taxi Driver. But like, these are also guys who are influenced by like European cinema. Yes. And Schrader was just into a very different, weirder, more esoteric strand of cinema than they even were. But without Scorsese, I don't really think that you have a Paul Schrader because he moves through. He gets Taxi Driver. You know, he writes Raging Bull. Raging Bull. He has another couple movies that he writes with his brother, like Old Boyfriends, um, which is a interesting little movie that doesn't quite work. Uh, and it's like one of the only dramatic roles for uh, Belushi before he passes. Mm. Um, and I watched that with, um, is, it, is it Talia Shire? Yeah, Talia Yeah, I Shire. watched that movie, yeah. It's pretty good. Yeah, it's interesting. It, but it's it's the very definition of like a curiosity yes. from that era. It was on Criterion Channel. And exactly, I just, I yeah. Kino yeah. put it out on Blu-ray like yeah. a year or two ago. Um, but then, you know, he writes Raging Bull, uh, Last Temptation of Christ, starts directing movies and kind of has a rocky beginning to his directorial uh, career where he makes uh, Blue Collar, famously gets into fights with Richard Pryor and has like a mental breakdown on set because Richard Pryor like drove everybody completely fucking insane. I still love um, that movie though. That movie is so good. It, it, it like vies for my favorite Paul Schrader movie. Every time I watch it, I'm like, oh yeah, that's right. This guy was a genius from like the get go. Hardcore. But, like, as he moved cat through the people, 80s, yeah. cat people, like, he had a bunch of hits. And then American Gigolo, you know, is is during the days when Jerry Bruckheimer was producing shit like Thief yep. and, like, really enabling these kind of more artistically minded auteurs before he became, like, the king of action cinema. But as Schrader's career 
kind of pass through these glory days. Then he has like a bunch of failures too. Cause he has like light of day, the yep. rock and roll movie that Pat, was Patty a, Hearst as well. Patty Hearst, which is actually pretty fucking good. It is, but it didn't but do well. Nobody yeah. saw it. Yeah. You know, and light of the day was the same thing. That was the movie that was originally supposed to be Bruce Springsteen's uh, major, like dramatic debut. He still even wrote like the, the title song for the movie that's used. And then Michael J. Fox comes in during that weird run of movies that Michael J. Fox was doing like that. And like, what's that bright lights, big city yep. too. Um, where he's trying to move away from being like Alex P. Keaton and Marty oh, McFly yeah. and doing like a more dramatic catch turn. of war coming after that. Too. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. With Brian De Palma, but like Schrader moved away from being the hot young screenwriter to being kind of like a faded wannabe auteur. Cause a lot of these movies fail and you can see light sleeper is him returning to that formula that he started with American Gigolo of like these lonely men in these subcultural professions. And it's him expressing the like malaise of a guy being like, all I really know how to do is like this one thing. And if people stop liking that thing or like needing me to be employed doing that thing, I'm fucked, man. Yeah. I mean, so many of his stories, all his characters, like time is running out for them in, in one way right. or another. And it's funny that, you know, He's a huge fan, and he writes about in he wrote about when he was first getting started a lot about Bedeker, you know, and we're Bedeker fans too. But it's a similar narrative, especially the last the later trilogy here, you know, an aging gunslinger basically with a darker past who's trying to usually pass on, you know, some sense of goodness to the young gunslinger, which happens in you know this um, ride lonesome and happens at Comanche Station, and it happens in all three of these films. You well, know, it's like, well, and he's long maintained that Taxi Driver is his version of The Searchers, too. Yeah, he's a huge Western right. guy as well. I mean, yeah. even in Master Gardener, there's that whole like monologue that Sigourney Weaver about has the rifleman. about the rifleman just out of fucking nowhere, where she's like, did I ever tell you about that time I was like on an episode of The Rifleman? And you're like, wait, what is going on here? Like, this is crazy. But again, it's just Schrader being like, I like these specific things. I don't know what to tell you. It's all I know. There's the whole uh, thing in Walker too, where he's talking to Lauren Bacall. He's like, um, what actor has played more presidents than any other? And then you have this little conversation, you know, it's like Henry, Henry Fonda. Well, feel safe. It's not a real president. So it doesn't count. And it's this whole little like movie, almost Quentin Tarantino kind of conversation about cinema. And then it just ends. You know, well, and you can see why Tarantino loves his stuff, too, because like, again, these were the movie dorks. They were these were he was like almost the proto Tarantino in a weird way of like a guy who was just obsessed with movies and wanted to channel that obsession into actually making his own art and just happened to be talented enough to do that. Now, the thing about Schrader that I do want to talk about especially as we get into these later movies, because he's now become almost like not only the patron saint of this podcast, but the patron saint of what we've come to refer to as late style, mm -hmm. you know, because his movies evolve through these times and like, especially his directorial efforts to where like going back and revisiting like American Gigolo, like, it's amazing to watch and light sleeper too, especially all that Ed Lockman, like nighttime oh, photography, gorgeous. like he had an aesthetic to his movies that 
kind of goes away as he gets older and like he his movies become more simplistic especially in this later trilogy of of first reformed card counter and master gardener to where he's abandoning a lot of the flash that kind of define it like compare fucking cat people to first reformed Jesus. and it feels beamed in from a totally different dimension. Well, um, you know, a friend of the podcast, my friend, Daniel, um, he's a huge trader fan. We talked about this this week on a call and he's like, dude, the late trilogy is, is definitely trippiest of compared to his other lonely men stories. Cause they're, they're all feel like fever dreams too. Like first reformed is really fucking weird, you know? And, and the way that he also changes, like it's the so aspect. rigidly styled it's, too. Yeah. Like the aspect ratio stuff is so like, it's immediately, especially when I saw it in the theater, I'm like, well, what's going on? You know, and it really puts you in a different, and then even card counter has that weird aspect ratio I've never seen before. It's like a little bit in, I'm not sure what it actually was, but he's always fucking with stuff like that. Of and it's like and like you were saying earlier about you know you watch Card Counter on silent right on at, at a bar or someone walks in like oh this could be a Michael Mann movie like this is fucking cool he looks like Vincent from Collateral is he like a hitman it's also like a card card player it's but like, it helps that it's Oscar Isaac playing him yeah too. absolutely he looks fucking cool but like that's not the movie like it promises something if you don't know Schrader like wait. Well, I have a good story about that. I just revisited the card counter uh, for the first time since it, it initially came out. And I actually watched it in the bar that I run in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre house. And my boss came back from like a f- having a few drinks at one of the bars down the street. He sees us watching a movie, comes in, he's kind of drunk. And he starts watching. He's like, oh, dude this movie looks fucking sick. Like, cause it's all the early scenes where like Oscar Isaac is explaining like how to actually count yeah, cards which is cool. and like all the prison stuff and whatever. And, and I see his brain working cause he's not a film dude, but he's watching it being like, here's a movie star doing a poker thing. And like, this is what this movie is about. And like, he actually started bugging me. He only watched like 10, 15 minutes with us. And it was like, bro, I gotta go to bed. I'm out. And you're like, all right. But he's bugged me all weekend for the reasons that you're just talking about, too, is that he was like, dude, what was that movie called? Card Counter? He's like, I got to where could I find that? I got to fucking see it. Like, I'm so into poker. Like, that's fucking cool. And I'm just sitting there being like, yeah, you might be into poker. But once we get into the Gitmo torture shit, not going to like it as much. And I, I reckon I so when I saw First Reform in the theater, um, I didn't see it at the festival. I saw it at South Lamar Alamo here. I go on a Friday night alone and I'm in this row and there's this row of like 20 mid twenties people behind me. It's a couple girls, couple guys and they're not talking, but like the vibe I could feel behind me. They hated it. I could oh, just, dude, I saw that movie in theaters twice and both times I just watched people walk out because it was like, what the fuck is this? This is not what I signed up for. I literally felt them like fuming. And again, they were very polite and didn't say anything. End of the movie, I, they're all like, man, what the fuck, right? <laughs> what the fuck is that shit? And I'm just like, I love the movie, and I'm really in awe. It's incredible. It's, and I was just like, oh, my God, Schrader's back, because he'd had, obviously, some misses. And I was like, oh, my God, he's, like, totally back in, like, American Gigolo, like, you know, this lonely man shit. I'm so here. And I was just beaming. I was, like, I was on fire, you know? Like, I was like, so excited. And I'm feeling, man, I want to turn around and say something. You know, I felt like, uh, but I was like, no, nah, never mind. So they leave. 
I go to the bathroom. I'm going out to the my car, and they're standing right by like the entrance to the car park there. And they go, "Hey, you were in our theater, right?" And I was like, "Yep." They're like, "At first form, I'm like, yep." They're like, "What'd you think?" So I think it's a fucking masterpiece. And they go, "Why?" So for 30 minutes, I gave them the whole history of Schrader. And I was like, I'm sorry, I don't want to bore you guys, but if you want to hear this, like, I'll just tell you all. And I was thinking about it. It's, it's so pretentious to do that, but I realized it's really hard to understand these films without context. There's many people I know who They're gone, made for, like, Paul Schrader and 10 other people. Yeah, and we happen to be two of those 10. And it's like, you have to have the context of the series. It's like, honestly, like you said, it's an autobiography. You come in number seven or eight. What the fuck is this? Like... What is it? Who and you watch as a fan, you're like, oh my god, he's back in full form, but also he's doing some different shit. It's like seeing your favorite band when they're older, you know. It's like, oh, I like the new music. Versus some person walks in, like, I don't get it. This it's is like weird. when Radiohead started making electronic music, yeah. and people are like, wait, I don't get it. What is this? And it's like, well, if you listen to it in like the history of their discography, like it kind of makes sense. They almost like run out of guitar riffs to play so they're just completely experimenting but Schrader does something very similar to where it's just like he made his you know slick 80s movie he made his existential art house 90s drama he tried to come back with the walker in in the late 2000s and and recapture that kind of energy with a small indie movie it fails completely but it's fucking great it's great but did you know woody harrelson hates that movie no way like he refused. he's phenomenal in i that. think he's amazing in it but he refused to do press for it it's one of the reasons why it fucking tanked is because he refused to do press because he thought he was terrible in it and he didn't get it and it was just the movie just kind of faded from existence like, I didn't even know that movie existed until I started working at Vulcan Video and saw it in our Paul Schrader section on the director's wall and was like, The Walker? What the fuck? I, this one totally passed me by. And I remember taking it home and being like, this is like quintessential Schrader. Like, wh- how does nobody talk about this movie? It's so good. It's just the B-side to American Gigolo. Yeah, it's com- we were talking off mic, but like, that's why I loved rewatching. I, I hadn't seen it since it first came out because I had heard about it when it first came out. I went on a big Schrader kick right after college and I was just like really obsessed with him and I was watching everything I get my hands on. And it was right before grad school. I think it was 07 when that came out. Yeah. And my parents, it was at the video store. My parents and I rented it. We all really liked it. That's how I got into Brian Ferry. Cause like it plays that amazing song, which I hope we hope we play in the pod. Um, uh, uh, which way to turn. And I was like, oh, this is really fucking good. And I kind of went through that to like Roxy Music. So I have, you know, Schrader uh, thank for that. But watching my parents, I was like, like, again, that film actually, like American Gigolo, I think kind of works on its own. Like it, it is a good mystery that you can kind of come in blind to Schrader. And it is a good self-contained well, it's why film. it's why also like Card Counter works, too, is because yes. that's much more of a straightforward like genre kind of exercise. Yeah, the trappings like, are there. There yeah. is a full on, you know, revenge narrative to it. Master Gardener has some of that, but like doesn't quite execute it with the same clarity. And there's also some clunky pacing to Master Gardener yeah. too. But like, yeah, there's a couple of these that you can come like straight into without any of the autobiography stuff and be like, 
all right, this is cool. Like I'm into this as just like a great mystery with like Gigolo or, or the Walker or card counter being like this re- kind of revenge drama almost. And then you could, I mean, light sleeper, I think because of the drug dealer and like mystery stuff and it even ends with a shootout and everything like there's a little more there, but yeah, you show first reform to like a complete like Schrader neophyte and their eyes are going to glaze over because they're going to expect like this big Ethan Hawke performance and what they instead get is this incredibly muted static movie shot in the style of like Ozu and they're like what is this well that's something we obviously performance is such a huge part uh, especially with his male leads I think about you know obviously he's pulling for Brisson in particular Brisson would he you know wanted his actors to be models right and right and then would have he would hire the, the lead from pickpocket was not an actor most of he mostly use non-actors and again, until that, emo- that emotional moment where it, it kind of bursts through at the kind of cathartic end. Um, but the way he directs, especially in the, in the later trilogy, I was reading this interview um, again with Oscar Isaac. And he's, he, uh, Schrader said, you're not a tree, you're a cliff. The waves break against you, then they leave. And I was like, fuck yes. Like, I, what a great... What a fucking dork. But I love that shit. Oh, it's amazing. I know you he's do such too. a pretentious <laughs> asshole, though. But, but I just, I was soaking it, like, dude. I'm a pretentious asshole too, so it's great. But do you remember <laughs> the the big expose when he because one of the reasons that you know first reformed card counter and master gardener is such a big deal is there was an even worse fallow period for Schrader when he made shit like the canyons and after Dominion the he made the fucking um, uh, Exorcist. Yeah, which I, I kind of like, but well, there and well, he has the Exorcist movie that's completely recut and redone by Rennie Harlan. Yep. Remade, he, yeah. He, he just basically made there's two Exorcists, yeah, like the beginning movies, like, and then um, you also have like the Canyons, uh, that Dying of the Light, Dying of the Light, which was taken away from him and he protested and then recut into a completely like different experimental movie that's impossible to find outside of like torrent trackers. Mm. And like, I think it's actually at the university of Austin's like library. No they shit. have one of the files of it where you can actually go for the longest time. That was one of the places you could go sit down in a room and watch it. Let's but now it. I, I have a copy of it from oh, okay. a, a nefarious site, let's say. <laughs> um, but then you also have, you know, the, the uh, Nick Cage, Willem Dafoe, like gangster thing, dog, doggy dog, doggy dog, which doesn't work. I saw that at um, Fantastic at, Fest. But I didn't go to the screening he was at because the first screening he was not at. The second screening he was. Yeah, he I came was to, like, what the he fuck? He was at the screening I went to. And it was person. the late night one. It was yeah. at like 11 o'clock. I inter- that was the first time I ever interviewed him as I interviewed him in one of the karaoke rooms uh, in the highball. Fuck yeah. Um, and I got to ask him about uh, Rolling Thunder and like him wanting Tommy Lee Jones to play the Billy Devane part. Also asked him about uh, the early drafts of, of Rolling Thunder containing Travis Bickle and how they oh, see each right. other at the drive-in watching porno, of course. That's so fucking cool. I mean, the, the fact they're in the same world. These are both these broken guys, right? Yeah. Back from Vietnam. And they're both oh, become, they're, they almost become superheroes in their own weird way. Well, the, the original draft of Rolling Thunder, and you can find it. It's online. If you read it, it is very much like the walker to taxi drivers, American gigolo. Mm. Like they're, they're 
like side A and side B of like, you know, a 45 vinyl single. Um, <laughs> but it's like those that this latest triptych of his like lonely saints, let's say like it was a big deal because like he tried to do the experimental movie, the canyons where he cast, you know, James Dean, the now disgraced sexually abusive porn star. Yeah, he's, um, he's done Lindsay Lohan. And then he's adapting a screenplay by Brett Easton Ellis. And remember that, was it the New York times or LA times? expose that was actually more interesting than the movie itself where it was like all this behind the scenes stuff of like Lindsay Lohan completely melting down in like a coke fueled she's at her worst today right yeah like totally bottoming out you know talking about James Dean like this great discovery and how he was going to be like this kind of outsider star that thank god that never happened but to take it back to your point about how he directs actors is I'll never forget this like anecdote from that expose. I believe it's the LA times. I'd have to look it back up, but how there's a nude scene and Lindsay Lohan didn't want to do it. And basically like locked herself in like the bathroom or a closet or something. And in order to get her out and try to get her comfortable, Schrader took off all of his clothes and directed the scene naked so that everybody could be naked on set together. And I'm just, no, I have this, like image in my head of Paul Schrader, weird movie bat brat, like bridge troll, just little penis he dangling looks, around. He's Ron Jeremy with a small dick. That's yeah. what I imagine in my head. This like rotund, those hedgehog. giant glasses of his yeah. and talking to him in that crazy, like croaky voice being like, Lindsay, come out of the bathroom this time. Like when you listen to the interviews on like Marin and, and the big picture with like Sean Fennessy that he's done, like they're almost indecipherable it's because like a he like guy croaks we saw through them. Like, yeah, he sounds very much like Lewis Black. Talk about dudes who have just put themselves through the <laughs> ringer, man. That was a rough night. Um, but that's why these the, this latest trilogy is such a big deal because like there was a period where it's like, well. Schrader's done. He might as well just hang it up with John Carpenter and go like play video games or watch the Lakers or something. He always feels on the cusp of being canceled for something, you know, because he. Oh, I'm glad you brought this up because we need to talk about his creepy Uncle Paul Facebook tendencies. It's so we're I I I'm I follow him on Facebook and it's a trip. It is. And it's funny. Every time a film comes out, it's about a two or three months ahead of time, he'll come on and say, well, guys, it's that normal thing. Focus Features wants me to stop posting until the film comes out. But let me talk to you about my love of Taylor Swift. But then he just gets into some weird... He's kind of like Jim Carrey, the way Jim Carrey tries to be funny now. It's like, dude, just stop. I don't know if... See, the thing is, I don't know if it's Schrader trying to be funny. Like, he knows they don't want him to talk, but it's like... Because he did a similar thing... Um, when I interviewed him and Ethan Hawke for First Reformed, and I think I told this story on one of the earlier podcasts, it might have been on the very first episode of the, the Rolling Thunder podcast, but we're all sitting in one of those conference rooms in the hotel, the Intercontinental that's that's right next to the Paramount before the screening. And he's getting himself a cup of coffee. His last one, like, kind of ran over. And you can tell I was close to the end, if not the last, like, interview of the day. I'm sitting at the table just kind of, like, talking with Ethan Hawke and, like, bullshitting a little bit. And Schrader turns around and does this whole, like, improvised monologue about 
how South by Southwest has changed over the last 10 years and how it feels like a high school prom where everybody's at the dance together, but the tech guys are the girls and the, 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 the movies are now like the unwanted dates and the music is over here, like basically doing drugs and spiking the punch. But he like rambles on and I like me and Ethan Hawke like looked at each other and did this thing where it was like, what the fuck is this guy talking about? Like, I don't think it's performance on Facebook. I think it's just his unfiltered, yeah. like, kind of id spilling out onto the page. Like, he really is, like, if, you're, if your uncle or your dad, like, instead of posting, like, Barack Obama memes or whatever, just let, like, whatever their craziest genius shit. It's like if your your uncle or your dad was a fucking genius, but they just let all that shit spill out onto, like, digital Facebook, and you're like, dude, put the fucking computer away. Stop posting. Well, because, you know, I was watching, I watched Mishima today, which is a great kind of, like, I think, um, like, Philosopher's Stone, you know, or kind of, like, Codex for for these films because like he didn't obviously create that's a real person but it's a very similar he's very similar to Mishima also such an interesting outlier in his filmography as a director well, and it feels nothing like any of the other movies it, well, absolutely and you have like George Lucas and Coppola like producing it you know and it's American Zoetrope doing it it's a completely you know stylistically with an amazing um, uh, production design and Philip Glass doing the score it's completely differently directed even more formalist than his other stuff, you know, but um, the idea that you have, well, I was watching Mishima today to get just kind of, it wasn't one of our kind of assigned films, but I like it a lot. And it is like, I a, did the same with blue collar. Yeah. It's like, well, and like Mishima's a good Rosetta stone, I think for these films, because it's a very similar type of character. While it's a true, per, a real person, this guy who's like um, an artist who, or a person who's waiting for something, right. They're kind of like, I want to do something. I want to do something. All these characters are kind of waiting for something to happen. And I was, when I was watching it, um, I could tell that like Schrader's a huge fan of Mishima because when he's making one of his big statements about, we need to like worship the emperor again, right? We need to kind of reclaim Japanese values, like traditional values. And he says, this has been, we've basically been infected by changes from the left and the right. And that's what Schrader feels like to me with his posting. And just as a person is you're like, Okay, a lot of times he's saying some really liberal shit that I agree with, but also he has that libertarian mentality of like, oh shit, but he might say something really fucking incendiary in the same sentence or very tone deaf too. Well, that's what Master Gardener feels like it's about to become because it literally is a provocation. It's about a guy who's a Nazi who has an interracial relationship with like one of his mentees, let's say. And it almost like it's it's like skews so close to being one of Paul Schrader's Facebook posts just in cinematic form because you could see him being like, what if a Nazi fucked a black chick? Now we're cooking with gas and he but and he's trying to get a rise out of you with it. But you're also like, Uncle Paul, pump the brakes, bro. Like. Not everybody's going to be into that. And like, this is the shit that actually will get you canceled. But it's like, he doesn't give a fuck at this point. Like, he looks like John Ford. He wears an eye patch half the time. He's had a lot of health issues. He's, he's had he's, a lot of health he issues. He lives in hospice now with his wife, who's who's ailing as yeah. well. Yeah. Like, he knows he's kind of at the end. So he's kind of just purging himself of all of this shit that's in his brain. 
But again, he just happens to have reclaimed this kind of late style and is able to translate it to to great movies. Now, Master Gardener is interesting because I think it's the messiest of this last three. 100%. Doesn't quite work. But because it's Schrader in it, because it has all the hallmarks of his work, and frankly, Joel Edgerton is just awesome yeah. in it. But like, I also I wanted to ask you a few questions about it because there are some things that I I don't quite get. Because for people who haven't seen it yet, since it's been out in like three theaters and twelve <laughs> of you went, um, they it's about a guy who's a gardener uh, on a plantation ex-plantation that is now known for an amazing garden that you can come visit but they do competitions and it's literally used to for like fundraising he's working towards they have an annual gala that raises uh money for like great charities um and it's owned by sigourney weaver who plays like almost like a tennessee williams style matriarch 100 she's She's super Southern Gothic on a different planet in this fucking movie. Um, But it's her dog's name is Porch Dog. Her dog's name is literally Porch Dog (laughs) and is black, which felt loaded. Yep. Um, But these were the things that I wanted to ask you about is because it it becomes about how she takes in a mixed race girl who is grand niece. Grand niece. Yeah. Um, and asks Joel Edgerton to take her on as his, his mentee essentially and teach her the, uh, art of gardening because she knows that her time is coming to an end and she wants to leave her estate to somebody in the bloodline. Now, here's my question for you. Was Sigourney Weaver supposed to be an ex-Nazi or like a racist or something? Because it hints at shit in this movie to where like there's developments because Edgerton and, and, and his mentee get into a romantic relationship. He's already in a rela- where he basically is almost like he's almost like a hybrid of all of these Schrader protagonists over the years, because like he's a man with a dark past. He journals all night. He also services the woman, the elder woman who employs him kind of like Woody in the Walker and yeah. uh, Julian in American gigolo. It's kind of sunset Boulevard. obviously too. Yeah. There's a know. little sunset Boulevard to it, but like when he takes his clothes off and stuff, because he's covered in SS tattoos, because that's the big turn, is that he was a proud boy hitman who's essentially now in Witsec uh, because he he turned on all of his, like, former white power associates. Um, but it she gazes on his very racist tattoos um, with almost, like, a kind of awe... It's revealed later when, you know, because he gets into, like, this confrontation with these drug dealers who who have a relationship with his mentee, um, kind of saves her, but they come and vandalize the garden. And while they're doing that, like, Sigourney Weaver's character pulls a literal a literal Ruger? Luger, yeah. That 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 looks like it's it's from the Nazi World War II days. He even calls it an heirloom at one point. And it seems like she becomes incensed when he's not even in a romantic relationship at, at first with his mentee. He kind of rejects her because he doesn't want to take his shirt off in front of her. He's ashamed of of his tattoos and his past. Um like totally turns on him. So my question was this is that like 
did she take him in because he was a Nazi at first and then there was something else there? Because it feels like she has a racist past herself just with all of these kind of outbursts that she has and then the, the Nazi weapon and everything. It just, it feels very pointed, let's say. That's a, I didn't think of it in that way. I mean, I think the, what I took it to mean beyond the gun was she liked that she had her thumb on him because she knew his past. Right. So like she looks at him, I agree kind of an, obviously she's like horny, you know, it's like a very sexual kind of scene, but I think it's more like I'm seeing the real you, but I kind of, I own you like no one else can see this, but me, because if they do, you're dead. That's how I kind of interpreted it. Now, that being said, I do think whether she's a Nazi or not very racist because from the beginning she calls her, she's like, she stands, she goes, she says, she says, I think, quote, mixed race. Like she yeah. says that. Well, that's it, what I mean. That was one of the other kind of road, let's say road signs to yeah. me trying to decode Sigourney Weaver's character. It feels like him inserting this old South, like archetype into this story about a proud boy trying to atone for his past sins and his past beliefs. And there's a distinct reason that she's the one who has him under her thumb. Like it feels like, because not to get, I guess, spoiler warning for anybody skip ahead, like two minutes as I kind of explain this, but in the end, one of the big moments is him rejecting her power and basically saying, I'm going to marry this woman and we're going to live on this plantation together as man and wife. And there's nothing you racist old white lady can do about it. Like that's a distinct choice. You also need me. Cause she even pulls the gun on him and he, you know, has the great traitor esque line of it's, it doesn't work and it's not loaded anyway. So, and it's very much the gun is supposed to be him. Like it's the Nazi weapon that now doesn't, it can't fire anything, but it's like, I don't know. It just felt like him. She was part of the past or the ideology that he was, uh, profoundly rejecting. What? I think that it might not be narratively motivated, but like um, thematically motivated, right? That like that's what I could see Schrader doing, where he's like, "I'm going to talk about this big this issue," but I don't think it's like she's motivated to do that herself. It's more like that's what the film is talking about in general. But I like your kind of Tennessee Williams thing too, because it is this like kind of like it all could take place in the one house if they wanted it to. Yeah, it could have been a stage play if he contained it even more and didn't have the budget that he did. Yeah, and the the problem I had just narratively with this film is they didn't understand, they didn't, he didn't put a moment where I was like, oh, this guy quit being a Nazi. It was like, no, he got fucking caught and then just flipped on all his like Nazi brethren and then basically to get them all to go to jail. And it's like, but I never saw a moment where it was like, he was rejecting that past. You know what I mean? I don't see this thing of like him being like, Oh, I didn't want to be that anymore. It's like, no, I just didn't want to go to jail. Do you know what I'm talking about? It didn't come across to me as he was like, so like, I'm ashamed of that past. Well, it's, it's kind of what ties it into card counter a little bit is because card counter is all about, a guy who was essentially a, a Abu Ghraib torturer. Yeah. Um, and he goes to prison be, and there's the big deal that's made in the, the narrative there that his boss, who's played by Willem Dafoe, who's kind of like the constant throughout Trader's filmography, 
is that, you know, the people who were prosecuted after Gitmo and Abu Ghraib and everything were the guys in the photographs, the ones who were posing with their torture victims while their superiors got off scot-free. And we do see that in the Card Counters narrative is that as Oscar Isaac's uh, William Tell character is, uh, you know, going from casino to casino and playing in tournaments and and making his living through cards, um, he encounters Willem Dafoe's uh, superior who's now essentially selling private security, you know, which is what a lot of these ex-military guys did. But it feels like Schrader commenting on how we don't confront the things that we did wrong in our past until we're actually forced to by outside uh, oh yeah like powers let's say because like you know Oscar Isaac doesn't even learn to count cards until he's in prison and like while he's in prison with all those flashbacks that we get to see like he he makes the decision then while he's in prison to atone for it and to try and reverse his ways. And I think it's a distinct choice to make him a poker player because one of the things that prisons and casinos have in common is they don't have windows. So they're both these self, like in one, in one case, a prison is just a prison. Like you're sent there because you, you committed a crime and you got caught while the casino doubles as Oscar Isaac's self-made prison to where he just goes from windowless place to windowless place, plays his games, makes his money. And in the meantime, journals in these anonymous hotels to where like he even blacks out the lights, ties up all the furniture to where it's completely plain and sterile and then drinks his, his one drink as all the Schrader protagonists do and, and reflects on his life. And it feels like that's what, the part of Edgerton's character story that we don't see, mm. we see the aftermath of that. He made the decision while incarcerated or basically living this, this very Henry Hill-esque Witsec life, you know, um, because the other thing that unites them too is that William Tell is not, you know, Oscar Isaac's character's real name. Both of these yeah. guys are operating under aliases the whole time that we learn later that they have, you know, different names when they were committing their crimes and they become different people. They transition or transcend past that person that they were. I just don't think that we see it with Edgerton's character where he actually reveals it in Card Counter. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, I love that. And but off your point there, one of the things really cool that there's a, there's a quote in Card Counter where he says, um, "Your body remembers; it stores it inside." Yeah, and I love that because and I was like, I wrote down it's like Cronenberg shit, right? You know that like you can change your name, you know, you can you can start over. You can tell people whatever, but you it's want. still in you, like what you did, and I, and specifically with with Master Gardner. It's he, on his body. He literalizes it. He becomes, it's a lot like, to, since you brought up Cronenberg, it's a lot like Eastern Promises yeah. to where Vigo's character, after he goes inside the Russian mafia, like it's literally a roadmap. It tells the story of his existence yeah. as a different person to where this, in Eastern Promises, it tells the story about this fictionalized person that he invents to get inside of that Russian mafia. Here, with Edgerton's character, he 
is telling a story of his past through his flesh, but his flesh does not forget. Like, cause there even is like the, the dialogue that he has with his mentee, uh, where she's like, why don't you get him removed? You know? And it, and that is one of the ultimate, uh, ultimatums that she gives to yeah. him when they do decide to get together is she's like, you will take those tattoos off because at that point he is completely cleansed. He is completely forgiven because love as corny as it sounds helps him move past like who he used to be. Well, yeah. And there's, it's something that runs throughout these films is that kind of very classic idea of, of lack of intimacy is when you say to someone, if you knew the real me, you wouldn't love me, right? If you knew what I had done in my past or who I really am, you would reject me. And that's like runs throughout all these films, right? It's like American Gigolo is this guy who, while he's very flashy now, like there's this hints of really fucked up shit he used to do when he was starting out, like gang ba- gang bangs and and uh, gay stuff, gay stuff. And that's what's interesting. All these films, there's this kind of way that Schrader kind of sometimes offensively uses, like actually very offensively uses like especially gigolo that's the hardest part of revisiting that movie yeah because there's a scene where it's like him going into the gay bar to go find leon is like hell like it's 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 like parts of cruising it's him you know that i had the, the same exact thought watching it this time is that the gay bar stuff in gigolo since they're pretty close in terms of timeline together same year they're 80 same exact year those parts are the things that when the, when people were protesting, you know, the, the the gay rights groups were protesting, you know, William Friedkin's production of Cruising and basically being like, oh, you're demonizing gays and blah blah blah. The movie that they imagined in their head was what American Gigolo has on screen, where where Friedkin's actually is a lot more truthful in its own demonic, fucked up way. Yeah, absolutely, and and then but you know his view of it is is but much kinder in, in Walker where the character is, you know, a, a gay character. It's still complicated and probably he's probably not the person to tell this story. It definitely is not. It, it, yeah. Creepy uncle Paul is it, back in full form. Absolutely. And his view of, yeah, those, those like the, but, but you have these, you know, those politics aside and that, but it's the, these characters with a past, they don't want to reckon with or show. And it's again, if you saw, you actually saw me. If you knew the real you me, knew, you would not love me. You, I'm not and, deserving of love. And it's and that's Julian all the way, right? Um, it's like, you know, him. He can't. It's the same thing that happens in um in in Walker, right? Where you have a character who does something out of love with no reciprocity. Like she, um, Lauren Hutton's character goes out on a limb, destroys her, blows up her life. Like literally blows up her life and almost her husband's political career for this hooker because she loves him. Like that's straight up. She wants nothing from him, but love same thing happens in the Walker. It's the end scene, his scene with like a female character. It's not romantic, but with Kristen Stock Thomas, she said, why didn't you give me up? Like, why didn't you like let cut me loose? And in his eyes, it's like, I love you. Cause it, it, he, he actually cares for her. And in these, in these worlds, it's like, everything's reciprocal, right? These characters are used to buying and selling. It's all about information and having one up on someone versus like, they can't understand. Well, I just love you. And I would do, and I would do that. I would do anything. Right. 
Because so many of the his characters' existences and relationships are just purely transactional. Yeah, transactional, absolutely. You know, yeah. and that it's not until they find real connection with another human being that they can transcend that subculture that they come from. I mean, one of the movies we haven't even brought up at all, and I frankly, I wanted to revisit it and just didn't have time before we recorded, is Hardcore. Because Hardcore is almost the inverse of all of these films is that instead of rooting us with a character who, who swims and flourishes inside of a subculture, it's about a guy Fish out of water, yeah. who's essentially like a representation of, of Paul Schrader's Calvinist, like strict father, uh, descending into the underground of pornography and having to become another person, um, to try and find his daughter who who has uh, run away from home and is now supposedly in uh, this underworld. And the underworld that Schrader paints in hardcore is like... Eight millimeter shit. Straight cartoon nonsense. Hilariously so at certain points. But it's interesting to watch, again, like sort of like blue collar. Um, it's interesting to watch those two movies as the kind of developing directorial voice of, of Paul Schrader that he would s somewhat abandon with Gigolo mm. or refine to a certain degree to where like they're his first two swings at directing a movie. And it's like blue collar was a failure, but like is pretty fucking good. But even in from Schrader's point of view is compromised to a certain degree. And hardcore he said was as well. And hardcore right? was to a certain degree, but hardcore did okay. Like yeah. he actually, he made some money on that. Um, but then gigolo is kind of the first full, like Schrader directorial movie. Do you think that's fair? I, absolutely. Where he finds his voice, but hardcore man, that scene where he goes, where George C. Scott goes undercover as the porno producer doing that with the, the auditions. mustache and the, the characters that he meets big dick black. Oh, what you ain't going to hire me. Cause I'm a blah, blah, blah. Like, I'm not going to say the word, but like, like Schrader creates these like cartoon worlds that also say a lot about him and his upbringing too, because he wasn't allowed to watch movies or listen to music or, 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 experience any real art or anything outside of his Calvinist upbringing because of his parents. It wasn't until he broke free and, and moved out that he actually saw movies and got to hear music like rock music and everything. And I think that's also why music is such a big part of, of like his filmography a lot the same way and why he probably bonded with Scorsese so much is that like, you know, he's got fucking, Bowie in, in cat people. Marauder got, does all Maroder the music. Marauder does yeah. the fucking music for uh, American Gigolo. Philip Glass, as you already mentioned, does Mishima. Blondie Brian wrote Ferry. songs for. Blondie wrote a smash hit. I mean, the hit. The hit of yeah. that, that time period for American Gigolo. Uh, I mean, like. Even the this later triptych of movies that he's made are all kind of defined by these by these very airy ethereal scores that are 
sometimes fitting. Master Gardener is a little wonky, I think. Card Counter is my um, favorite of those three. Dude, Card Counter is my, yeah, it's my favorite all the way around of those three movies. I know most people prefer First Reformed, but I just love Card yeah. Counter so much. Um, Master Gardener, uh, one of the th- main thoughts I had is that this is Paul Schrader's Gran Torino. <laughs> Because it's there's even like dude that that moment where he goes and confronts the drug dealers on the corner is like so close to Clint Eastwood doing the same thing with the Korean gang members yep. and gang like Gran Torino. I couldn't help but think about it. It's just you know instead of crushing PBRs and using racial slurs like Joel Edgerton is like just hiding all that shit beneath this like veneer of of uh, horticulture. Let's say yeah, um, but like. All of his movies are, are defined in one way or another by their music, too. And that's that feels like a guy finally getting to show off his record collection after years of being told that even listening to this stuff would lead to damnation, you know? Uh, yeah. And that's pretty cool. Yeah, no. And you think about, like, the music for Light Sleeper. Like, they had all those original songs written. Oh, yeah. And it's all, it's it's like more more inner monologue stuff of John Latour's character, right? He's like riding around and it's these very literal songs about like It's like a de- Greek chorus. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Oh, and I mean, we haven't even gotten into Light of Day yet, which was supposed to be for Springsteen. Springsteen writes the music for it. Joan Jett is yep. one of the co-stars in it. Michael J. Fox comes in. It has actually pretty awesome uh performance yeah. moments. Um, but that movie is all about these two rocker siblings who come from a very strict religious household, one of one of whom is played by Gina Rollins, and how they have to like reconcile with their parents while following their dreams of being rock mu- musicians. Also has a, a very early performance by uh, Trent Reznor and Nine Inch Nails. Oh, that's that right. Yeah. Like, who shows up. So like Schrader... I bet you he had a pretty good record collection, man. He's got and he's got good uh, good ear for talent. So, you want to get to questions? Let's do it. All right.
And we're back with questions about 1992's Light Sleeper and the Lonely Men of Paul Schrader. Martin, top three. Go. Now, top three Schrader period. Is that okay? Uh, are we including... St- I think we should stick to the stuff that he directed. Oh, yeah, but but right. but, but outside... Just the Lonely Men stuff, like everything. Oh, everything. Okay, yeah, cool. just go Just go balls out Schrader. Uh, Light Sleeper is number one for me, hands down. Um... I just, this is the one I connect with most that we talked about, you know, just even now being of a certain age, just feeling very connected to that film. It's the one that every time I watch, it's also just like a great performance by Defoe who's like really weird in it and in a really great way. He does that, where, that weird. He's really like, warm in a way that he's not usually in, in most of his roles. Well, and it's the nicest, it's the nicest Schrader character probably ever written. It's the kindest. Is it the only likable one? I think so. Because he's the one that you're like, man, he's neurotic and you feel for him. You're like, dude, I just want him to be okay. Like Julian, you're like, you kind of get, it's like, you're an asshole. Like you've been fucking people over, you know, um, even as much as I love Woody in in the Walker, he was gonna be my next pick for it because he's he's so fun. Like he he's such an entertaining. I actually think Oscar Isaac's William Tell is somewhat likable because he realizes like yeah the things that he's done that are wrong. But even then, like he was an Abu Ghraib torturer, so you kind of got to hold that against him. Having Oscar Isaac play it helps, too. Again, yeah. You know, it's like when you have a character like that, but I think out of all them, I think John Latour is the most likable. Did you know that, uh, did you read the the interview that, I guess it's not interview, but there was a clip floating around from uh, Paul Schrader's Q&A. I believe it was when Master Gardener played at was it can? the New York Film Festival. Okay. That originally he wanted, this is why, like, it also feels like the most Facebook post movie from Uncle Paul. Um, He originally wanted not Joel Edgerton to play that role, but he pitched the producers on Kevin Spacey playing the Proud Boy role. And thankfully, the producers were like, no, Paul, we we don't want to do that. Well. Yeah, I'm really glad that didn't happen. But it's kind of it, it kind of takes it back is that you can see his his headspace, let's say, when he talks about stuff like that to where again he he's poking you in the ribs a little bit and definitely wanted to of being like, "Hey, can a Nazi be redeemed?" And then it's also like, "Hey, can Kevin Spacey be redeemed and will the audience actually sit through that narrative?" Like he wanted to kind of comment on cancel culture and guys being forced to live in the margins and everything and, and, and deal with the things that they did in their past with this movie. But like, man, imagine that version of it where you don't have Joel Edgerton, who's quite good in the film, but instead you have Kevin Spacey doing, you know, some Schrader journaling up all night. I, I, I don't know, man, like that, I would definitely still watch it for the very reason of like, let's see how this goes. But like, I don't think it's going to go well. No. Well, cause it's, we talked also about American Jiggle and Walker, both about like, they're both presaging cancel culture. Right. An idea of what a scandal is and like how in certain parts of society, especially high society, they'll cut you loose in a second. Like you don't have friends, you know, as soon and, as you stop providing like a necessary yeah. service, like you're gone. Or if you are an, if you you're are a tainted. negative or if you are a negative impact on their, their business or life or social status, you're out. Um, my second one is Mishima is I, I love this movie. 
Um, I'm a huge Philip Glass fan. I actually get to see him present this film at Emory. Uh, they showed. Oh wow! Yeah, he did. He talked about working with Schrader. It was fucking great. He also worked with with uh, Scorsese on Kundun, you know. And he's like a family. A whole family loves um, Glass. My dad saw him in concert with my mom when they were younger, and um, totally normal guy. Ve- well, and he's a very similar. He's he's not as trollish as Schrader, but they're both very like exacting, weird, direct, phil- confrontational, philosophical, like really like you know. Also, you know, I think Glass of Mirror like three times. You know, like very much an artist who's like difficult to be with. I fucking love him though. Um, and then my third is Card Counter. I think I think it's my third favorite um, Schrader film. I that one I saw it the night before my birthday. Uh, 2021 it was like that came it was like Thursday night screening at like fucking Barton only place that was playing it and I was just if I loved first reform but card counter I was like it's so complete and it's just so it's also the most entertaining of those three it's the most entertaining it's the most propulsive yeah it feels like the one where the message or what's on Trader's mind is delivered the clearest yes like and it just frankly I think out of all the movies, and he's the one thing we haven't hit on. We talked about how he he directs actors, and some kind sometimes is uh, pretty pretentious in his direction. But he's obviously very good because, <laughs> yeah. like, he gets these incredible performances from these established leading men, and like guys like Willem Dafoe have signed up to work with him like what five, six times at the, at this point. Like, they just keep coming back. So there has to be something that he's doing right, uh, at least behind the scenes and how he communicates with them. He gets great, great performances and, and his female characters too. I mean, I think he's so great, especially in a lot of these films, like, like Tiffany uh, Haddish is amazing and card counter. Like she's so physical and like the way she's so silent for the first part, she's carries so much like, that psychedelic scene where oh. they walk through the the, the lighting—it's one of the best scenes exhibition. He's ever shot. Yeah, it's it's incredible. And that super—I think it's like a CGI shot when it goes super above. Yeah, and it's just this color, and it's very similar to the the flower scene in Master Gardener or the floating scene yeah. in, in First Reform. All three have the transcendent moment in earlier in the film versus the end. They all have the end scene too, but like they have the actual moment of like reality cracking. Yeah, and I'm like. He's he's being weird, man. And I'm here for it. Yeah. So, what are your three? Um, I would probably go with Light Sleeper, Blue Collar. Number three is tough because there's a few that would have to probably knife fight for that last. Like, that wasn't easy for me. Spot, but honestly, probably ca- card counter. Like I I I think that that one for a lot of the same reasons you just said too is that it just. It just works. And if we're picking movies from different eras from him, like it just feels like you got, you know, your your beginning, middle, and end with him to where blue collar is the early statement, him trying to work out these weird, like Marxist viewpoints that he and his brother share and have since rejected, frankly. Um, because they did originally write that script apparently as like a Marxist manifesto. What a bunch so of fucking crazy. Um, when, they, when they wrote Yakuza, they, they would like just drink coffee and do cocaine. And they sat back to back. Sure. And they wrote it in six days or something yeah. like that. Just they're insane. Yeah. Cause you know how much, like how much cocaine do you think Paul Schrader has done in his lifetime? I mean, pounds, pounds, Oh, pounds. Just like the one thought I had watching American gigolo 
and, and I think I wrote it down in, in my notes too, is that I was like, is this one of the ultimate cocaine movies? It feels where cocaine's good. It makes yeah. it feel very cool. It's before <laughs> cocaine gets dark. <laughs> But yeah, it's like you have, you know, the early Marxist manifesto, the work of like an angry young man, like who has something to say. And then Light Sleeper is like the middle-aged malaise that we now connect to as 40-year-old dudes. And then the card counter just being the best of this late style period. Because the other thing we haven't talked about with card counter is that it was a COVID production. And it feels Uh, very much like a COVID production because in every scene, there's only one or two people. They're usually six feet apart, sitting at tables in empty casinos that have clearly been quarantined. But it feels awesome. It adds to that loneliness and it adds to that sense of Oscar Isaac being in kind of a uh, self-selected prison. Yeah, and I love that he's, to your point earlier about, uh, again, about prisons, you know, and prisons and... um, uh, casinos being so similar, they both have rules, right? They both have specific right. rules, and all these characters are all about, you know. I'd even think about the the pit bosses and stuff, basically standing in as guards. Yeah, they're watching, and he and he knows idea too of like a lot of. I kept thinking of the song Desperado, you know, the Eagles song. It's like these guys who stay in the middle, you know, with love and with life. It's like don't don't bet too high. You know, don't have, don't Make have your 700 bucks. You're good. And you're good. It's like, that, and that's just how he does life too. It's like, don't shoot for the moon. Don't try to have intimacy or love. Just eat and sleep and shit, you know, and, and don't get in trouble. It's like, it's pretty, pretty, uh, bleak existence. Exactly. Double feature. So I'm going to do Mishima with uh, naked lunch. I think, Wow. Both are films that are biographies of authors mixed with the stories they tell. Some pretty light reading there. That's going to be a heavy fucking day. Um, but both, I think, do a really good job of connecting like the stories that they tell with like their auto, their biography, right? And also, with Naked Lunch, it was the unfilmable. We talked about this with the Cronenberg a couple times with Cronenberg, but like the unfilmable book. And it is, as it, as it reads... But mixing with biography, mixing with other stories, and I think Mishima is this great um, uh, kind of like uh, what's what I'm looking for. Um, non Mishima is this great non chronological kind of like narrative of this person. You're seeing it from all these different angles, and by the end, you have an idea of who this guy was. It's sort of like his Rashomon. A- a- absolutely. Well, and, and I was watching the making of it on the Criterion desk today and like Schrader is not on there, but they're interviewing Philip Glass. And the reason he decided to take the job is he was doing a lot of these like conceptual operas like Einstein on the Beach and Satya Graha. Um, and he didn't tell them in these straightforward opera narratives. They were almost like he said portraits of people. And when you're looking at a photo album, he said it's not in usually chronological order. It's like, oh, cool. And you have these jumps in time. And he goes, that's why I kind of agreed that like Paul understood that kind of storytelling. Um, And I love the way that both those films kind of give you an idea of, you know, who Burroughs is and who Mishima are. And they're both obviously two of my favorite filmmakers and both about the difficulty of being a creative and and the obsession that goes along with that. So that's my very pretentious answer. What are yours? I'm going to steal one from you that you mentioned off mic. Uh, Blue Collar. And Straight Time. Yeah. The Michael Mann written, ex-con, very sweaty Dustin Hoffman movie that 
he kind of feels like a Paul Schrader protagonist. Um, total loser. Total yeah. loser. Guy on the fringes, just trying to get through. Um, but I mean, blue collar. I guess for those who haven't seen it, is that it's you know Harvey Keitel, uh, Yafet Kodo, Pryor, and Richard Pryor as these three guys who work uh, on the Detroit the the line of like the Detroit Auto Factory. It's how they deal with you know the the labor unions and the bosses and how they're always trying to be, be kept down by the man. And how they bond through these hard times. But then it becomes like a paranoid thriller in the back half where, like, it feels like they're being hunted uh, by these guys and oft. And, like, there's a horrifying scene where Yafat Kodo is killed in the, the paint room. Dude, that's just one brutal. of the, the most horrific things I've ever seen put to film. So sad. But also, it's a great example of how uh, Schrader throughout his career took guys who weren't known for doing a thing and got dramatic turns out of them. Now with Richard Pryor, um, it sounds like it was hell on earth working with him because he was in the midst of his drug addiction. Um, There's this story that Schrader tells about one of the first times Pryor even talked to him. He came on set and was like, you're the first white man I've seen since one used to come and fuck my mama. And just like walked off. That's how he introduced himself. And Schrader literally was like, what do you do with that? Like, I don't, how do you even respond? He's like, sure, whatever, man. Um, But like he would do this throughout his career is that you have Joan Jett in uh, Light of Day. Um, You have Tiffany Haddish playing against type in the card counter. Like you have Belushi, even though he didn't direct this movie in Old Boyfriends, um, doing his only dramatic turn. Like it was something that fascinated him is that he saw the multitudes contained in these different performers and really tried to bring it out of them. And Dustin Hoffman in straight time, this is just one of the the great undervalued Dustin Hoffman performances. And also one of the great uh, back alley LA movies that it's just hard and gritty and violent. And like, it's, it's and like realistic to very realistic. Cause it's based on an Eddie Bunker novel who also Schrader would adapt an Eddie Bunker novel into a, uh, dog eat dog yep so you know there's the connection there as well but like yeah that would be my double feature oh i love that eddie bunker also helped with um reservoir uh, dogs reservoir dogs but didn't he also help with jericho mile yeah where he met michael mann yeah um well because man like adapted his book like that's what he was adapting basically and uncredited uncredited yeah not he did not get his name on the script um all right remake so I was having this thought while watching uh, these, the late Paul Schrader movies of the, the God's Lonely Men, the triptych of, of First Reformed, Card Counter, and now Master Gardener. And I wondered, why have we never gotten a Paul Schrader streaming series? Like, it feels so fit, like... They tried with American Gigolo. Yeah, well, he wasn't involved I, I, with that exactly, at all. But like which I, I haven't watched any American Gigolo. I've heard it's pretty bad. And which is a bummer because Bernthal, man. He rules. Uh, but I mean, like, it is one of those things, especially with how experimental and how willing he is to kind of give himself over to, like, change, that he never did 
hook up with like a Netflix or a Hulu. Amazon would love him. That's like that kind of shit. Amazon, yeah. like he makes the movies that we lament don't really exist anymore and really become like uh, uh, limited series or, or running series on Amazon is that it's like, you know, he makes the mid budget or small budget character movie. Still, that's for adults that we just don't get enough of anymore. And I guess that would be my main answer. I don't know if I would adapt. Like, Master Gardener almost feels like it would work better as a series. Like, it felt like parts of that story were cut out that we didn't see. Um, You know, Card Counter could totally work as a series to where it's just William Tell bouncing from casino to casino. And then we get whole episodes, like, in Abu Ghraib and, like, dealing with his military background. First Reformed, not as much. That's just him doing his grand statement kind of experiment on transcendental style. And I don't think Netflix or anybody are expanding that into 10 fucking hours. Though, who knows? Um, we did get Squid Game. When so, Wa- mean, Walker's kind of like House of Cards, it's that, yeah, you know, they, they, they can do. Milieu. Yeah. Um, also really great. We haven't commented on a really pretty good Lily Tomlin performance. Oh, I love in, her. In and a great Ned Beatty, as always. Yeah. Actually, now that you're talking about it, man, how awesome would it be if you did like a Walker series with Woody? Because he's doing that White House Plumbers series for about Watergate. Netflix about Watergate, and that's part of what plays in that character's backstory. And, like, that would be an interesting expansion because that's the thing that, like, Schrader's writing, and maybe it's more fit and what makes them more fascinating as movies, but, like, could also work as series is that they're all guys with backstories and they, there's, there's plenty. plenty of room to where like we hear little bits and pieces and details about them and you're able to essentially like piece it together in your head about what's going on with these guys but like you could flesh that out into a full 10 hour narrative with no problem what well, I means you you talking earlier about when you were there with ethan hawk and him and like even just like bullshitting he's saying there's a kind of profound and weird but crazy shit right the guy is not lacking for ideas right and i think tv to give him a larger palette and it's like dude here's six episodes man like i know you can fill it you know there's plenty of giving it to everybody else so why not him no he could go nuts on that i think like you said all the backstory i think he could take it really slowly with like some of the kind of like like creeping through these worlds um go deeper on like the details of like how these guys live like again spend more time with card counter on gambling actually like you have an episode about how to beat the house yeah you know like really going deep i mean if nick reffin is allowed to i was gonna say copenhagen fucking cowboy like we can get paul schrader's series yeah i if i were gonna do a remake i wouldn't do a remake i would do like a sequel i think it'd be because i we were you know we're talking about like again this like watching these films chronologically is like his autobiography, right? Of him at different ages. And he said that it's me at 30, me at 40, right? Is imagine one of those characters, but like, but today now, like have Willem Dafoe play John Latour again, you know, it would be an interesting kind of experiment. I was trying to think of like what a modern day Schrader protagonist would look like. Yeah. Like what their profession would be like, who would be the Travis Bickle of like modern day Austin. That's interesting. I wonder, you know, I would love, love to see him like take on crypto and like take on NFTs, like the weird, oh, gee, th- like those types of like tech bro cultures. I think he could like go crazy with that. So I feel like he obviously he did a canyon. So Brady, Brady, and Ellison, he have think similar ideas about modern male culture, which would be interesting to see him kind of explore. 
But I, I could see, I don't think I would ever remake those straight up any of his properties if it wasn't him. I had I, an idea about like Paul, a Paul Strader style uh, movie or series about a projectionist like existing inside of like a movie culture where like it's all switched to digital. He basically is like pushed to the margins, but he's still obsessed with movies and can talk about everything and like kind of slowly loses his mind as he loses his jobs like back, you know, back to back to back and just maybe like exists in a city like Austin or LA or New York or whatever. And like that whole like repertory scene and how like they encounter the modern day, like young Schraders as they're like the old guards of like what movies used to be. Well, I like that. Cause it also ties into the whole, like, you know, the shrinking ground under his characters, like the yeah. end of an era, similar to like, we talk about, you know, boogie nights or, or Babylon, Right, of these characters. Yeah, like his time is end. up. Yeah. So, face melter. Yay, nay. I mean, I got to go nay because, like, yeah. I can't... As much as I love, we're just saying Light Sleeper, this is not a film I've really shown to a lot of friends, and they've been like... I have shown it to friends who I, I knew would like it, and they're like, this is great. Um, yeah, but it's a vibe. You got it. It's, it's a secret handshake kind of film. You show it to someone you know is going to, like, really but it's a specific kind of person. Yeah, they're going to get on its wavelength. They're going to be with the up all night. I've had too many drinks and maybe a little too many drugs, and now I'm reflecting on like the parts of my life that I regret, and I, I'm into that kind of like melancholy sleeplessness. Yep. Yeah, not many people are going to get into that. But I'm fucking in. I live it, baby. It's <laughs> my life. <laughs> Well, Martin, this is great. And technically, the season finale for season four of Secret Ooh, Handshake. Dude. We done it. We done it, man. It's been a good been a good season. I know. And we're going to fire another one up. Don't worry, guys. We'll be right back. We have a couple bonus things in the meantime that are already in the can that we're going to release. But we do thank you for continuing to listen to all of our insane ramblings <laughs> about weirdos like Paul Schrader. And just know that season five of Secret Handshake is coming soon. See you then. See you then.